Welcome to Bankless, where we explore the frontier of internet money and internet finance. This is how to get started, how to get better, and how to front run the opportunity. This is Ryan Sean Adams. I'm here with David Hoffman, and we're here to help you become more bankless. David, we have a fantastic show with Hasu. Tell us about it. Hazu is one of the few people that I consider a secular thinker in the crypto space. Uh, he's very sober in his thoughts. He thinks clearly. And there have been just, he, he's produced a ton of content that the, the most incredible thing that I think uh, about the content that he produces is that we've seen companies make choices based off of the the content that Hazu and the content that comes out of Uncommon Core. So Hazu, we would call him a person that is the M0 of thought, I would say. Uh, there's a, just a lot of memes, a lot of ideas, a lot of concepts that comes out of what Hazu produces. So getting Hazu onto the, the Bankless podcast was an absolute necessity. And he did a great job walking us through how he thinks about the space. Um, we talk a lot about... Uh, the concept of a blockchain crypto system as kind of like an organism, kind of a, a, a cohesion of stakeholders that creates some sort of, uh, that has a body and then also a spirit, right? It has the, the physical code and the, and the physical people running their nodes, but then it also has like the social contract, right? It has the implied values of that system and how these things interact and the, the different ways that they cohere together. You know, it's cool. I think Hasu thinks of himself as a as a Bitcoiner, but also an Ethereum. So this is this is kind of a good follow up to our Nick Carter conversation, because I think both Nick and he think in um, they're both free thinkers, as you said, and many of their ideas intersect and, and complement one another. But what I love about Hasu is he is not afraid to sort of shake things up. So um, I think he originally maybe came more from the Bitcoiner community or Bitcoiner side of things, but he's not afraid to break rank and write articles like why Bitcoin might not survive the Bitcoin standard. <laughs> that was the title of an article he wrote, and it was about how crypto banks uh, might sort of infiltrate uh, Bitcoin and break up the, the decentralized social contract and value system of the network. So he's definitely not afraid to go push back on on norms and to push back on ideas. And part of the reason I think he can do that is uh, he's actually a, a pseudo-anonymous account. So on Twitter and everywhere he posts, um, you know, there's no profile shot. We don't actually know who, who Hasu is. Uh, he's got sort of this Rick and Morty with an eye patch uh, avatar everywhere. And that's, that's, you know, what we know of, of Hasu. To me, he's like, from Rick and Morty, and <laughs> he's dropping all of this wisdom. But what what's so cool is uh, that you know the the crypto community is very much a merit based um, social economy. So doesn't matter who he is, really. It's it's we, we judge Hasu based on the quality of ideas that he presents, and not based on you know his reputation or or pedigree. Uh, have no idea who he actually is, but know he is a, a, a fantastic thinker just given what he's written and the way he presents himself. Every conversation that I have with Hazu, I always find immensely valuable, and I'm sure you, the listener, will too. We also talk about uh, common topics such as EIP-1559 and the, the issue of the growing world of crypto banks and how that influences this crypto industry and what it will look like into the future. So, 
evergreen topics and coming from a guy who thinks about them a lot. So this is a, a fantastic interview. Uh, before we get into that interview, let's talk about some Bankless things. Both part one and part two of a Bankless Nation I've written are up and on the Bankless website. So you guys should check them out. It's a, it's a two different two different articles. One kind of goes into the past history of nations. One goes into the future history of digital nations. We talk about these concepts in this episode with Hazu. And so uh, I definitely recommend reading those. If you guys don't like to read, but instead you prefer audio content as you are a listener of a podcast, you can go to the Bankless YouTube where I read these articles to you. And I also scroll through the article. So you can read it with me, but I read it aloud read it right into your ears. So it makes it really easy. Uh, and then while you're there, you might as well just subscribe to the Bankless YouTube. Yeah, the Bankless YouTube is really uh, catching fire these days. We actually just released a new show that we're publishing first on YouTube. It's called State of the Nation, where we talk about topical news items that are most relevant to the Bankless Nation. And we're releasing that on YouTube every Tuesday. Uh, we'll also publish it to this podcast stream as well on Wednesdays. So from here on out on Mondays, you're going to be getting a typical edition of the Bankless podcast. And then on Wednesdays on this podcast stream, you can, you can listen to State of the Nation. Uh, and you can also catch that a day early if you go to YouTube and subscribe to our channel. So to do that, just go to YouTube, type in Bankless, and it'll pop right up. So we are about to dig into the interview. But before we do, we should take a minute and talk about our sponsors. Maltus gives you the ability to run your business without a bank. That is the dream. It is the first ever bankless bank account for entrepreneurs who want to run their business both on crypto and traditional currencies like stablecoins. So it features a multi-sig wallet. That means you can have team access, not just individual access, which is necessary for a business. So you can implement access controls. You can also earn interest on your crypto using money protocols inside of Maltus like Compound and Aave and others. You can streamline pay, uh, payments as well. Maltus has been featured on Bankless. We're huge fans of the product. They're adding fiat on-ramp soon. And as you are listening to this on June 22nd, they are launching a completely revamped app. You've got to check it out. If you're starting a business, want to run a business in crypto, check out Maltus.co in their revamped app. We're going to be doing a video pretty soon and publishing it on the Bankless YouTube channel as well. All right. So you need to go to Maltus.co. That's M-U-L-T-I-S.co and check it out. When you mention Bankless, they'll put you ahead of the queue. They'll give you better priority and let you sign up quicker. In this episode with Hazu, we talk about the influence of exchanges, crypto exchanges, and how they turn into crypto banks and how that starts to dictate what these chains look like. However, getting value onto these systems doesn't always require a crypto bank. And that's where Monolith comes in. Coming soon on Monolith is an on-ramp into your Monolith smart contract wallet directly from your bank account. So you don't need to pass through any sort of crypto exchange, crypto bank to get your value on into Ethereum. Monolith, for those that don't know, is a smart contract wallet that also connects to a crypto Visa card. So you can go to the store, swipe your Visa card as you normally do. And instead of pulling out dollars from your bank account, it pulls out DAI from your smart contract wallet. So this is a way to live a bankless life without having it impact you and your daily livings with, with your friends and family. And you don't have to be that weird person that only has crypto money and no real money. 
so it wraps your Ethereum address in a Visa card and Visa is accepted basically all over the world and you still get to have access to your DAI earning that interest rate in DeFi at the same time. So check them out at monolith.xyz to get your bankless Visa card today. All right, guys, let's go ahead and get right into the interview with Hazel. Hey everyone, we are excited to have Hasu with us. Hasu is a crypto researcher. He is also a writer. He's read a ton of stuff you've probably already read. If not, his ideas are likely embedded in your subconscious as they are in mine. Hasu, it is fantastic to have you today. We're really excited about this. Yeah, Sam, I'm really excited to be here, guys. Okay, so when I was looking at the volume of writing that you've done over the years since, I don't know, 2017, 2018, when you started to really get active in crypto and publishing, I was just overwhelmed. <laughs> like, there are a lot of uh, even your earlier ideas that I feel like are embedded in my own subconscious. But I want to ask you this question. You know, maybe it's not your most popular article, but what's your favorite article that you've written so far? Hmm. Well, first of all, uh, first off, that's uh, what you said is probably the biggest compliment that you could give to to me. Um, I don't know. I just I just love to write stuff where people say, uh, or that becomes basically part of this. Uh, what everyone believes, right? It's I don't know how to put it. Yeah, but um, because I'm, I myself am I'm influenced by by some writers very strongly and it's just we talked about this a little bit before the show started but i feel like it's it's worth repeating here but we all have these these kind of people who influenced our own thinking in a very strong way and for me for example like he's he's not the most popular guy or like he, he doesn't tweet very much and so on but a lot of my thinking for example is um, strongly influenced by reading paul stortz's blog um truthcoin uh, .org, I believe. Um, so a lot of times when I write something that, and I actively wonder, okay, where does this particular thought of mine originate? Then and it's like, there's like a 25% chance or something that I first had the thought while reading his blog or picking up something that he said. Um, yeah. And there are like a bunch more people like that. So James Presswich is someone who was probably almost at the same level as Paul for me, just in terms of when he says something, then I listen so intently because just historically, there's such a large chance that when they say something, then it becomes like it, it permanently alters my, my thinking. That's so funny because, uh, so I'll have to check out Paul. I've read some of James's stuff. I'll have to check out Paul a bit more too, because, um, I feel like you are probably in that category for me, at least personally. And, um, Nick, Nick Carter, who, whom we yes. had, uh, a couple episodes ago is probably another one who's in that camp for me too. But like, it's, it's very cool how the crypto social, um, like contract or the, the social layer, I, I guess I should say sort of works because mm -hmm. it very much, um, it's, it's sort of a, a just a, a free open thinking society, um, especially among, among some of, uh, some crypto thinkers <laughs> who haven't descended into weird, you know, maximalist mm -hmm. kind of like narrow minded paths. Uh, and each of us 
kind of build on what another says and sort of take an idea you know further and it really develops this incredibly rich social layer that i haven't personally seen anywhere else i don't know if it exists anywhere else but i haven't personally seen it yeah and even um even when it comes to maximalism that's it's so fascinating to observe like in every aspect of this um complex or these complex social dynamics that we have in the crypto community there's always something to analyze um uh, and to draw in interesting takeaways from in my opinion so um the way that uh, just the the kind of tribalism works um in crypto i mean we've talked about this like so many times before but the there are very strong parallels to religious movements and when I realized that it really transcended the debate for me and it made me bullish on a whole other level about cryptocurrency when I realized how religious the movement is. And I'm generally surprised by how how few people get this still or, or still see the religious aspects of crypto as a negative. Because for me, it it's so massive like even though i don't participate in these kind of re religious rituals and the way that i guess others do but just as an observer i look at them and i find it in incredibly positive for the future if you have a movement that's that has ambitious goals and, and changing how the world works um and you they're then having this this kind of religious structure is just and religious fervor is is just fantastic All right, so so that I'm glad you bring that up because so David and I were just talking about this uh, yesterday on uh, the the first uh, State of the Nation episode uh, that that we released, and we we're talking talking about whether crypto is more similar to a religion or mm -hmm. a nation state. Mm -hmm. And uh, David, I think you made the comment that um, well, you know, to you, Bitcoin feels a bit more on the religion side, whereas maybe Ethereum is a bit more on the nation state. That both sort of blend both you know like both aspects together. What, what's your take, Hasu? Is religion or nation state? What's um, what's crypto most like? Yeah, I read your article actually. I thought it was good. Um, so the way, I, 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 correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the way that you def or like the the main criterion that you defined for the nation state was um, that it provides physical protection for its people. Is that correct? Or not not even a nation state, but just a, a nation at, at large, right? Yes. Like right. so, uh, the whole idea was to expand the model of a nation into the groups of organizational schemes that have come throughout history. And, and religion would be one of the original schemes of a nation that it, one of the core features of it is that it offers protection for its own constituents. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I kind of buy into the, I guess you would, you could say like it's the Sabo, Saboian uh, way of thinking about this or also Harari, It's, they both kind of um, have a very similar attitude about this. But uh, so those were both the, the, the state or the, the nation state and um, religions are both uh, social technologies or social institutions that are that humans invent to increase their ability to cooperate with one another beyond the, the confines of their small trusted social group. So it's it's always about scaling the ability to trust one another. And as a result, you can you can cooperate with one another. Um, and 
when the they both operate in like in slightly different ways. So the the punishment or like the way that the I would say this the state does it is um where you, you would combine it with some kind of uh, legal system. Um so you impose some rules that are if the rules are applied it's beneficial for, for everyone, which is like a social contract in that sense, right? But um like you, you can't kill me um or i can't kill you but in return I, i'm sure that you won't kill me and we enforce these rules by uh well by by, by physical punishment in the case of the state but in a, and in the case of religion via some yeah i guess some kind of more arcane threat right so um it's it's the punishment in the afterlife or it's the fall from grace i don't know what to call it um but in both uh, in both in both it's it's also the the threat of being rejected from your community but that 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 aside so um so they are both social technologies um aiming to scale our ability to cooperate with one another by removing trust from the equation and I don't think that there's, I don't think there's a dif difference between like Bitcoin and Ethereum. There, um, to me, they. I think even in the future, I think it's already happening. But the, just this distinction between religion and a nation state, even in the in the physical world, is just going to disappear. So um, this the state can be a religion and the religion can be a state um and then there are other movements that have sort of the attributes of both a little bit so um i just think that this whole this whole um distinction between them is, is going to disappear and yeah bitcoin and ethereum definitely have attributes of both i want to bring it back to the original question so the um bitcoin to me is more of a religious nation, although it is also like a nation state. But Ethereum, to me, is also more closer to a nation state, but it is also a uh, has its religious components. Uh, do you recognize that distinction? I guess I, I guess not really. Um, so, I mean, yeah. when you would say it, it's more like a religion, that that would imply to me that uh, the properties are very strongly reliant on social norms because that's what religion mostly does. It, it creates or it, the rules uh, in a religious movement are upheld via the, the strong enforcement of, of social norms and values. And that's how you get these scalability benefits. Um, but Bitcoin is just as much a, a technical protocol where rules are enforced uh, by a network of computers that reject each other's messages if they don't follow a certain, well, if they don't follow the correct protocol. Um, so it's, you have just as strict uh, as an enforcement there. And in some ways, the enforcement in Bitcoin is arguably even stricter, right? Um, because in Bitcoin, the, the, the Bitcoin community is more, more strongly believes in this this notion that everyone should be able to validate um, the blockchain and we should reject the idea of weak subjectivity. So there should be no subjectivity at all. And what is the heaviest chain? Whereas in, in, in Ethereum, the Ethereum community believes that, hey, it's okay, we can use checkpointing for validation and 
it is okay if there's if an attacker takes over a proof of stake network, then we can just fork them out on the social layer. Uh, so I feel like the the enforcement is more strict and more physical still in Bitcoin. So in that sense, uh, in that sense, it it might be like Ethereum might even have some some of these more religious aspects or more social aspects if you equate religion with social enforcement. That's that's really interesting that you say that, Hasu. You know, one t- one take on this, and maybe mm-hmm. part part of the reason why David feels like um, Bitcoin has a bit more religious aspects to it and fervor about it is just it does feel like there is a um, richness in. Bitcoin that in the social layer, in sort of these uh, enforced norms Mm -hmm. um, that isn't yet present in Ethereum, though Ethereum is kind of is kind of getting there, right? There there are some very clear things in Bitcoin that you have to sort of subscribe to to be you know part to be a Bitcoiner, right? And there's Mm -hmm. even you call them maximalists, or you've written articles about an intolerant minority, people who who go around and they 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 enforce these norms, you know, through sort of purity tests. Um, so and so is not a real Bitcoiner. If uh, if he was, he he wouldn't say X Y Z, right? Yeah. Um, but but possibly that's just because uh, Bitcoin has been around for twice as long. Um, you know, so it's had you know ten years ish, and in Ethereum's had five, and it's still kind of working itself out. So I think that maybe a closer comparison would be to check out Bitcoin in, in 2015 versus Ethereum today, where it's just starting to establish its norms, but. It, well, on the topic of kind of uh, these these social coordination systems as a religion, right? Mm-hmm. I find it very interesting that um, when people talk about their religious affiliation, they might say, "I'm a Christian," or "I'm a Muslim," mm-hmm. uh, or I, "I'm a Hindu," right? And they put a name to it. We do the same in crypto. I'm a Bitcoiner. I'm an Ethereum. And I guess my question to you is the same question I asked as Nick: uh, Are you a Bitcoiner? And are you an Ethereum? Do you identify with that? Yeah, sure. I, I would say I'm both. Um, for me, I, I would say mostly, I, I heard Nick's interview and I, I was nodding along when he said, so yeah, I think he asked you for a definition of what it means <laughs> to be a Bitcoin or an <laughs> Ethereum first. Um, it's the most Nick Carter thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's very, it's, it's, I also agree with what he what he said that it's uh, it's easier to define what a Bitcoiner is because they're f- like the, the 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 values of what that means are mm, much more defined. But I also agree with what you said earlier that the values of what it means to be Ethereum are also becoming more strongly defined over time, um, and it's mostly this it's mostly a process of removal. Um, so you start with a community that has a lot of different beliefs, um, but those beliefs are not held very strongly. And then eventually it converges, it converges on, on the much smaller set of much stronger held beliefs. Um, at least that's what it seems like to me. And then people who were like held some of these fringe views, um, they find themselves pushed out eventually. So yeah, you, you, any kind of movement I think tends towards the the more extreme versions of uh, what it previously believed over time. Do you think those extreme, like people, those extreme mm. versions, the, the the maximalists, are useful 
for these Predo religions? Oh, yeah. I mean, this goes back to what we talked about a few minutes ago with just the, the kind of religious fervor, how, how I think, how valuable I think it is. And one example would be, <clears throat> one example would be, um, in terms of what I, my, 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 uh, the article that I wrote before the one on EIP 1559 about, um, custodial banking. So this is, a, in my opinion, a great example of how it's not enough that you have a protocol, a technical protocol that can, um, enforce a particular set of, uh, of rules, um, automatically because the, the number of rules that you can enforce with a blockchain is actually quite limited and it's not nearly enough to build a system that can become a global form of money that is very valuable and, uh, exists in a very adversarial environment, you need to pair this with, with social norms as well, right? Look at gold. Gold is, gold is a physical element and you can't alter the shape of the physical element, but everything that is built on this base layer of gold as a settlement asset is entirely shaped and molded by humans. Uh, and it's extremely malleable in the sense. So. The same is true for Bitcoin. You, you can uh, you can have um, you can have a very robust base layer, but if people are not using the base layer but using any kind of system that is built on top of it, then um, that's not something that that's a not something that the base layer can control, and b it can it can push the entire system in a state where the roots of the base layer that they, they don't even matter anymore. So if everyone's everyone's transacting only on on higher layers then whoever controls these higher layers, they control the entire rules of the system. So that, that shows to me why this, the social norms are so, so important um, as well, if you want to build a system like that. So Hazu, in my article, the, the Nation article, I uh, made some sort of claim that the protocol of these systems are their DNA. Right. And as these systems grow, if you take the, if you take the lens that these systems are organisms, mm -hmm. as these systems grow, the DNA of the protocol, the, the specific details of how their specific code works, defines what they look like at maturity, you know, as DNA does, like as an organism grows up, it determines the shape and, and structure of said organism. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think what you just said, and, and something I think we want to get into in this episode is the the DNA of a particular protocol, if it doesn't retain its the sovereignty over its own soul, right? If it doesn't control what it looks like at maturity, then there are layers on top of the protocol that can perhaps capture and control the soul of the system and redefine what it means to use use this system itself. Uh, and to make this in more concrete terms, so I'm not speaking in, in generalities, uh, this is the conversation of, of crypto banks, right? Yeah. Where the cryptocurrencies have a soul, a, a structure of belief systems and values that are instantiated in the code, in the DNA. Um, but if everyone is using these crypto systems via a proxy, like a crypto bank, that may or may not thwart or corrupt the soul, the spirit of the the spirit of the system. 
Uh, and so I kind of w- want to get your take on, on A, that perspective, but then also lead into the conversation of what the future of crypto banks are and how they are going to impact the spirit of these systems. So I think it's, I agree with the take that um, the, the, co- the code of these protocols is the DNA, but I would say it's part of the DNA because your part of the DNA also rests in the social contract and the social contract is not the same as the, the protocol itself. So they, the, the social contract is for, to me is really the layer zero, um, of any of these systems. And then on top of the, the social contract sits the protocol and the pro- protocol is expressed by code, but the protocol can only enforce part of the social contract. So it can, for example, enforce that I'm not allowed to print money from thin air. I can only spend a coin that I have, that someone that either I have mined or that, uh, that, uh, someone has sent to me with a valid signature. Um, but then there are things that are not possible to enforce with the protocol. And those are also important parts of the DNA. So for example, the fact that we should use, uh, or we should validate our, our own transactions or that we should, um, use when possible, uh, don't use intermediated forms uh, of payment and custody for our keys. So we should hold our own keys. So those are not like, how would you enforce those things by the protocol? You can't, um, this, this has to be all done through social norms that are also built on top of the social contract. And that's where I think the, whether the, I guess, where the more strongly minded and vocal people in, in both communities, uh, are very important because they do the same as the protocol does, they socially enforce, um, particular rules that are important for the long-term survival of the protocol. Does it make sense? I mean, I, I think of these people as like, they're like priests, right? Almost in kind of a religious context. They're like the, the core devs of the, the meme layer of the social layer. And they are important. And the weird thing about it is um, sometimes I see the Bitcoin maximalists uh, on that side of things. I think, geez, this is bizarre. Like you guys are not responding to like logic and reason. And yet at the same time, it kind of makes me bullish on Bitcoin, right? Mm -hmm. It's this weird dichotomy because that level of religious uh, fervor implies that there is a strong social contract around some of these things. And ultimately it's that social contract that secures the Bitcoin network. And that's also why I see, like I get bullish when things like, um, you know, the, the parody multi-sig hack, uh, there was an EIP to release funds there. Right. But, um, that never went through that was sort of shot down by the Ethereum social contract. That to me is, is bullish for Ethereum maintaining its minimum necessary issuance uh, policy. We're not going to you know, do another DAO and intervene in the protocol at all. And that's also why I don't really get worried about the move from ETH1 to ETH2, because the same social contract, like from Ethereum's inception, is going to be preserved. You're moving the spirit, but, you know, you're you're moving to a new body, but the spirit is the same, right? So 
uh, I'm not as concerned as as some people are. If we're like, what if what if the ETH two technology doesn't work out of the gate? Well, it's fine. We still have this the social contract which hasn't been disrupted. We'll we'll fire it up again, and we'll keep moving on the social contract. I don't know what your take is on that, but that's where what I was thinking as you were saying that, Hasu. Uh, yeah, I actually have a, an important thought on this. I think so. It's it's true that um, that the social contract. I mean, you can move, you can you can retain your soul, if you will, and move to a different body, and that's all good. But I think if you, like the Ethereum community made one mistake with the transition from ETH one to ETH two, and that is increasing or like introducing double issuance there, um, because it creates. So the way it works is when Ethereum two launches, it, it has its own um, its its own issuance, and there are two tokens um, until the two systems eventually merge. But it's it's unclear how long that's going to take, and it could well be could well take five years or longer. And what this does is it creates an incentive for Ethereum one to to stay as its own network and split off from Ethereum two. Because the moment that Ethereum 1 and 2 merge, there is this supply shock um, where all the coins that have accumulated in Ethereum 2 suddenly become merged with the coins that are in Ethereum 1. And I, I see this as a very big oversight, and I was very surprised to hear this, because you, you create these disincentives in the community um, against merging the two together. And I think... I think there will be. I think this will come become a bigger issue when it's actually time to merge those. And the issue gets larger the longer the the merging takes. Yeah. So one question I I've, I've been thinking I've seen a debate in the Ethereum community on this is so uh, so you're right. So ETH when ETH one uh, when ETH two fires up, there's going to be additional issuance, right? So there's ETH one issuance plus ETH two issuance, and it's going to increase the total issuance of Ether on an annual basis by, you know, maybe half a percent, maybe a percent or so. Uh, and some have advocated that, well, we should um, decrease the block reward on ETH1 to compensate for the additional issuance in ETH2. So there's not like additional net issuance. But the other counter to that is any, you, you know, you only get a few rubs of the genie bottle, right? And any change that you make to the issuance policy it's human intervention, quote unquote. So it's hurting the credible neutrality of Ethereum by changing issuance. What side do you fall on with that? Do you think that in the transition to ETH2, do you think that uh, ETH1 should reduce its issuance to compensate? Or do you think that the net impact on the, the credible neutrality of the issuance of Ethereum would be impacted from that? And that would be a net negative. I'm not even sure that you could um, prevent this bad outcome by lowering the issuance of ETH1 because in either case, you still have the supply shock when you eventually merge the two together. So I think it's more a result of having this launch in stages. But at, at the same time, I'm not really sure how you would do it better. Can you do it in a way where the two systems are... I mean... I mean, I think, I guess you could, you could solve the problem by making it possible to trans, uh, to transact in both ways, right? So you have a bi-directional uh, transfer between ETH1 and ETH2 
And the way that I see it, then there's no zero to one supply shock. There's only well, any kind of coin that is created on ETH2 can it immediately affects the coin supply on ETH1. So it's more like <laughs> um, it's more like like boiling a frog very slowly um, compared to throwing it into hot water. At which point it's just going to jump out again. Um, I think that that is probably how I would have done it. So I, I don't see the question yeah. of should we lower issuance of ETH1 or should we not lower it? I don't see that as central. So we want to pause the interview and tell you about two more of our sponsors. The first is Ramp. What's holding crypto back? Getting fiat into the crypto system. In order to get fiat into a DeFi application, you have to create an account with an exchange. You have to wire funds. That's the same thing that's holding your DeFi app back. Users drop off, off in the sign up process because they don't have crypto. So what you're doing is you're limiting your market to the hardcore crypto people. But with Ramp, that no longer has to be the case. Ramp is a delightfully easy fiat on-ramp. It lets first-time crypto users get ETH, DAI, USDC. This takes five minutes or less. This reduces the dropout rate so you can build products for the real world. It's free for developers. It takes 10 minutes to implement. You can 100x your addressable market size if you have a DeFi app. So this is the ultimate growth hack. What you need to do is go to ramp.network to check it out. That's R-A-M-P.network to check it out. See how easy this is. And when you mention Bankless, they will on-ramp the first 100K in US dollars for free. So make sure you go to Ramp, mention Bankless, and get that set up today. Aave is a DeFi protocol that you just have to check out. It is a borrowing and lending protocol on Ethereum, but with a few more tricks and tools than, than what you may be used to. Uh, so you can put assets inside of it and supply assets and then get your interest rate based off, off those assets. And then you can also borrow those assets. But the cool thing is you can borrow assets at a fixed interest rate, which is a really important money Lego in order to expand what the Ethereum nation can really offer the world around it. Having a fixed interest rate where you can borrow assets and not have that interest rate change under your feet is it going to be a crucial feature for enabling more tools coming out of the Ethereum economy. Uh, in addition to that, there's also A tokens, which are tokens that represent the underlying collateral, but has that interest rate baked into it. Uh, Aave is climbing the leaderboards of the value locked in DeFi, about to cross 100 million locked. They're currently at 98.3 million. Uh, so they are just absolutely crushing it. Developers, you can check out their Flash Loan protocol, which can really help the UX of your application. Uh, a Flash Loan is when you borrow assets from the protocol without any collateral, so, so long as you pay back that those assets in the same transaction. And this can help your users move their positions of, of uh, their move their debt positions, either a, a compound debt position or a MakerDAO vault position. It allows you to swap out collateral instantaneously in one transaction, uh, which really allows for a lot more, which really is going to be a blessing for your users and their UX. Go to Aave.com and you can deposit crypto to start earning or borrowing today any Ethereum wallet works. So check them out. I want to circle back around and, and finish a thought that we were talking about a second ago. Um, Hazu, you said that uh, the DNA of a protocol isn't completely uh, in, it, 
instantiated in the code itself, but it is also part of the social contract. The social contract of a system also has the DNA of the protocol. Um, but I think a case can be made where that's actually a weakness, right? Because the whole point of the system is to relegate to code as much as possible. And so if there is a social contract in Bitcoin of, you know, run your own node, hold, hold your own keys, you know, do all these things, it, it the reason why those are rallying cries in Bitcoin is because the Bitcoin protocol uh, is not comprehensive enough or strong enough to build that into the base layer, right? Uh, and so as a result, uh, the I see the social contract as compensation for the weaknesses of the code. And so we have to actually rely on, uh, you know, crypto banks to do our services for us. And the social contract is like the force against this, re reminding people about why we are here, reminding people about what our value should be. But in, I think it would be me more scalable and more um, sustainable if we didn't actually have to rely on the social contract and the values of these systems were completely uh, part of the DNA of the protocol. And so any, I, I see any, and the, the metaphor we use, Ryan, Ryan uses is, is a priest, right? Like a priest of the system, a, a somebody that people go to for insight and leadership. But we saw in, in the, the heyday of the church that the, the priests just claimed that they were the messengers of God when really they were just some dudes who were capturing like the audience of their local region and then extorting them for their whatever, their, you know, their Sunday donations, right? And, and priests would like lie and say like, only I can speak to God. That's why you guys have to listen to me. And I, and I can kind of see that similar role of, of Bitcoin banks, right? Where they say, you don't have to actually speak to the Bitcoin blockchain. You can just speak to me. Uh, when instead it's a capturing and coercive system, and I see that as a a weakness of the Bitcoin blockchain, and the and and so you know Ethereum tries and and fixes these problems with things like smart contract wallets or or um, you know sharding and and all these things that allow for maximal decentralization. It's taking away the role of religion and 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 trust and and just having to have these. Um, these these priest leaders remind ourselves what the values of the system are because the values of the system are more closely baked in on Ethereum. How do you feel about that take? I think I think we're conflating two issues there. So the first is, in my opinion, the social contract is always central, um, and it the the protocol can't take the role of the social contract because. The social, I mean, the so if there's no social contract, for example, against or that that says what the protocol should do, then just it should it would be trivial to just change the protocol and thereby change the social contract. But that's not how it works. So there needs to be a, 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 there must be a community of people who strongly believe in the same values and the same things that the protocol should do. And that's that's the whole way that we uphold. Uh, basically the values of the protocol. That's why we all converge on the same rule set because we all believe in the same things that the protocol should do. So that's why I think the protocol is always an, is always an implementation of the social contract. And that brings us to the second part. So if you have a social contract and you have a protocol to implement it, then the question is, how well can the protocol implement the social contract? 
And the better it can implement it, the more well, the more robust it probably is. Um, because let's say you have this, you have you have a social content and it has two rules, and you can enforce only one of those with the protocol, and the other you have to enforce via social norms. Social norms are much more malleable um, than the protocol. That's why we invented these protocols in the first place, because otherwise we could just do it uh, via traditional institutions. And uh, so the question really is how well can the how well can the protocol implement um, the the social contract in a way that is not malleable? And that's where that's where I, th I see the big. Uh, strength of Ethereum, because if the protocol is more expressive, then the wish or the the optimistic goal would be that we can automate uh, or enforce more of the rules of the social contract via these kind of automated means of the protocol, and we don't have to enforce them as much um, socially. So yeah, that's that's, I think that mirrors exactly what you said about Bitcoin, Bitcoin banks or Bitcoin being on a path to scale via custodial banks to a much larger degree maybe than Ethereum, although that's totally up in the air still. Um, but I definitely see the advantage of having um, non-custodial um, smart contracts take the roles of custodial banks so yeah that that is definitely or that pretty much summarizes why or what i like so much about ethereum in relation to bitcoin can i just say hasi so that is the entire thesis for the bankless podcast like mm. that's that's why we are on this quest to go bankless because you know we believe and I think the the you know members of the commu crypto community uh, believe some of them anyway mm -hmm. that the social contract of Bitcoin is peer to peer, right? You know, a, a peer to peer cash system was the title of the Bitcoin white paper, right? Um, and like peer to peer means bankless, right? It's it's not trusting a, a central intermediary. So so David's point of like one of the, the problems with Bitcoin is that it uh, requires that the, the members in Bitcoin kind of observe this social norm. So like at once a year, we all like withdraw all of our private keys from the exchanges to make sure that they have them, right? Mm -hmm. um, that's an example of, of that being preserved in a more flimsy way. And the Ethereum approach is basically like, don't have crypto banks at all. Have transparent, open money protocols, DeFi protocols essentially, mm -hmm. where you can always see the balance of your crypto. So their balance sheets are, are completely uh, transparent to you. And you maintain custody of your funds so you can withdraw at any time as well. So you don't have to get into these fractional reserve areas. And I, I think you do believe that because you read this fantastic article, you know, why Bitcoin might not survive a Bitcoin standard. Um, mm -hmm. I, I wonder if that raised some eyebrows in the, the in part, part of the, the Bitcoiner community. But can you talk about that a bit more? We want to spend some time on that. So why is it bad if uh, Bitcoin custodial banks essentially start to become the main way that users interact with Bitcoin, the asset, and even with Bitcoin, the network? Yeah, I feel like so. I feel like Hasi, like uh, you know, there there's some Bitcoiners who think it's great, right? Nick Carter might be among them. 
um, that like custodial crypto banks doing the majority of transactions on Bitcoin, that's a future that is appealing. Uh, what do you think about that? Is there a problem with that vision? I mean, so Nick is a realist and a pragmatist, um, and I would count myself into that field as well. So there's no, not really a way around um, the emergence of Bitcoin banks um, or just banks in general that hold Bitcoin and offer financial services for Bitcoin users. But the big risk, in my opinion, is that that eventually everything just happens. Everything happens on, on these custodial banking layers. And then you lose this, then you, you lose all the advantages that made Bitcoin special in the first place. So the Bitcoin, Bitcoin can enforce a different social contract than um, a, a non-Bitcoin a non system could because the rules are enforced by the protocol. But when the users don't use the protocol anymore, then the system is vulnerable to the, well, the in, in the exact same way that the traditional financial system is. Because then you, you, you still use a protocol, but it's a different protocol. It's a protocol that is subject to the laws and regulations of wherever it operates. Um, so I, some people argue against that, that as long as you can withdraw to the base layer still, and basically, like, let's say one country shuts down all their Bitcoin banks, and then everyone would panic, uh, and they would withdraw their money to to hold their own keys and, and continue to operate on the base layer. But there, this is not possible um, because once Bitcoin has grown to a size where, let's say, I don't know, 15, even, even just 50 to 100 million people use Bitcoin via banks, if those people all wanted to withdraw their coins to the base layer, then it's, it's already not possible because it's it, it just the, the capacity of the system doesn't allow for it. So you lose this optionality. You have this optionality decay um, of freedom, <laughs> um, pretty much, where uh, the users become locked into the higher systems because there are now too many users um, to withdraw to the lower level. Um, I see that as a big, big problem, and it doesn't just exist when the fees are too high. Like let's say there are too many users and uh, they can't all withdraw to the base layer, but it, you also have the opposite way. So the fees are maybe too low on the base layer and it's the system is just that the base layer is very insecure. Then one way to, one way to, um, one way to still transfer money and hold funds safely is, is just by holding the same amount of BTC on a bank ledger. So the bank ledger would then effectively replace uh, the Bitcoin, the ledger of the Bitcoin base layer. So in, in my mind, and maybe this is my Ethereum religiousness coming out, but the logical conclusion is what the Ethereum blockchain is trying to achieve, where an expressive base layer allows for individual banking services mm -hmm. and for individuals to truly be their own bank. Uh, am I right in concluding that that is the next logical step or, or am I missing something? No, I mean... That's that's why I like Ethereum. I think it's it's I like the the other approach of doing it 
or taking a bit more risks with the base layer, but at the um, for the potential benefit of having uh, more trustless additional layers, because it's already clear that the the base layer itself is not going to cut it for any kind of larger scale adoption we have today. Um, so we know that, like we, I think we have to take a holistic view. Let's just imagine, so Bitcoin and Ethereum both have 100 million active users. So how how does the system look at that at that size? And if in Bitcoin the base layer plays only a very small role in serving uh, these users, then what does it really like? What does uh, having this very strict and very robust base layer even give you? It does not automatically mean that the that the whole stack is robust. Um, so I think it's 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 a good approach to take or it's possible to take some trade-offs with the robustness of the base layer and allow for more um, expressiveness, for example, um, just to buy you the ability to extend more of that trust to, to higher layers. So what do crypto banks look like when they're, you know, uh, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of users of these systems, right? And And a lot of these users are using these systems through crypto banks like do what 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 there because there's a um there's a lot of political significance to large crypto banks right like if coinbase and gemini go from just being an exchange to being a financial services uh in you know institution they they are domiciled in physical nations uh they have a ton of data mm -hmm. uh is it fair to to say that these crypto banks at maturity when they have you know millions of users that they start to kind of look like the web two carcantuans, but in the in the crypto web three world. Uh, and then, what if that is true? Like, what what's the relationship that these systems are going to have with nation states? Like, how is a nation state going to perceive these these uh, you know new financial institutions? I think they look exactly like the banks we have today. So we would just rebuild the existing financial system. So I don't think it it matters very much that uh, what the what the base layers do at that point. So you have the banks that work like banks do today and um, and then they settle amongst each other uh, maybe once a day or something. So, I mean, that that seems to be what the end state of the Bitcoin vision is. Even, you know, Sa Safadine in his book, The Bitcoin Standard, talks about the settlement layer, Bitcoin being used by, you know, maybe a thousand banks. Uh, and maybe, maybe, that's, maybe that's generous. I guess my question is, is that a better world? Like, is was that the point of the the white paper in two thousand nine to create a new banking system that's based on you know a asset with well, twenty one million in we scarcity? We don't know where we are going yet, um, and it's I don't like people read so much into Bitcoin and the Bitcoin white paper, and Satoshi never promised that. Bitcoin would be a system that could be used by billions of people and could do all the things that kind of the, that can fulfill all these promises that the Bitcoin community invented on top of them uh, eventually. So um, I'm not so sure that it is realistic within like the next 50 years that we can mm, fulfill even 20% of these promises. You know, Bitcoin and Ethereum by extension they 
they might do a lot of good for the world, but I mean, they they might not they might not be uh, everything that is that is promised, right? It's not it's not like they could support uh, billions of users. Probably either uh, uh, neither of them could. So the DeFi version of a crypto bank is more or less MakerDAO, right? Where it is a crypto bank, but it is a protocol. It's a crypto bank protocol. And like the governance over these systems is defined by an asset that's uh, tradable on the free market. Uh, and it largely offers a lot of the same services that we would expect a crypto bank to, to offer, right? So credit uh, and then savings uh, and then, you know, using many different types of collateral. Uh, and I expect there just to be even more financial services based on top of MakerDAO into the future. Uh, and you wrote this art, this fantastic article, which I hope everyone mm -hmm. uh, who is listening to this will read or has read, called "The Future of Money Could Be Discretionary." Uh, and so, when we talk about how you know crypto banks, real crypto banks, you know physical crypto banks, are kind of just you know the same boss or new boss, same as the old boss. Do you see like uh, MakerDAO and protocols like MakerDAO as the viable uh, solution for these, uh, for actually bringing in a world that we are kind of hoping to imagine that is you know, new and, and sci-fi and perhaps more fair and equitable? I wouldn't read too much yet into Maker. Um, I think it, it serves one aspect, right, which is fully collateralized, collateralized loans, um, but it does not yet serve... Uh, or it does not serve custody and it does not does not serve payments um so these would be i would see i would see those as the three big main things that banks do so banks uh give credit or create credit or monetize debt and they do payments and they do custody and um only one of them is is currently served by maker but maker is still um a super interesting um, project, in my opinion. So your article, The Future of Money Could Be Discretionary, uh, it illustrates that, you know, dis discretion, discretionariness is also subjectivity, right? And part of, in my opinion, part of the DNA of all these systems, Bitcoin and Ethereum, they're, they're supposed to do their best to remove subjectivity out of the protocol, right? Um, yeah. And and the the Zabo idea is that you know any amount of subjectivity is a weakness when it comes to scaling these systems out to their to their maximal degree. Um, at the same time, MakerDAO is a protocol, and uh, when you you know submit collateral, there is no um, credit scoring, there is no you know utility bills, there is no government ID. So to some degree, subjectivity has been removed. But to what degree do you think that like the subjective governance over the parameters of MakerDAO is a hindrance on its ability to scale? Yeah, that's a that's a very good question. So I think for a system like Maker, it's it's a kind of it's a tightwalk um, because of course the system is more valuable to to borrowers um, the more types of collateral you can use, for example. So uh, including real world type of collateral that is like, like let's say USDC where there's really an issue that that sits in a regulated environment um, whereas for the holders um, for the holders it could be better that if if the type of collateral is more trustless right? so you kind of these two streams going up against each other but of course they would also like 
liquidity. So you kind of need to balance these different interests against each other. Um, but I'd also like looking back at that article, I, I kind of mixed up two issues that could have been maybe two articles, um, because it mixes up, um, basically a discretionary or like a flexible money supply and, um, a system that, that is controlled by, well, basically by humans and not by, by algorithms. And it, I think it made a very strong point that you can have systems with a flexible money supply, um, like maker. So it is that it is possible to, to target a price stable money, for example, um, because I feel like that's not really something that the crypto community at large believes in. So they think like price targeting is always a scam or something, <laughs> or it's always something that requires, um, I'm not really sure what they think, but in general, the, just the, the benefit of price stability is, uh, doesn't get a lot of credit. Whereas I think. When you say they think yeah. it's like fragile. Uh -huh. Well, also the target yeah, of the price it? itself requires some sort of subjective opinion as to what that target actually is, right? Like, so the CPI for the, for, um, yeah. the federal reserve is a human generated metric that we have decided is valuable at targeting. That's a great point. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I think they, they don't, they look at the entire stack of what it takes to make a, a flexible money or price targeting money. And they think it can be abused in too many ways. Um, and that might be true. Um, but the more we learn about automating, um, the kind of steps that it takes to keep a money price stable, I think the more interesting, um, these ideas become, and that's, that's why I gave the, um, basically that's why I showed how you can keep a money price stable entirely by implementing positive and negative interest rates. So, um, that, that part of the article was, was actually picked up by JP Koenig, who is a finance blogger, uh, someone that I, I love to read. And he, he turned this into a smaller article about how central banks should, um, or like how people should not be afraid of negative interest rates. Um, because they're not necessarily something like unnatural or anything, because if you look at, if you look at derivatives exchanges today, like Deribit or BitMEX or FTX, the only way that their, um, perpetual swap contracts track the spot price is via these continuous funding payments. So you always have one side of the market paying the other and that encourages more people to go long or to go short. And that is the exact same thing that happens if you have a money that you want to make price stable. So you also set a target and then you just continually rebalance the supply, like the demand to go long. Uh, those are the, the holders of the money, right? So the holders of DAI, for example, and the demand to go short. Those are the, the borrowers, the people who draw DAI against collateral. So they are the short side. And just by implementing this, you can create a price stability without any discretion. So that's, 
So that's that was basically the the first part that could have been abstracted out of the article. But it also looks at what maker can maybe learn from. Well, I guess both what central banks can learn from from maker, but also what maker can learn from existing monetary policy options of central banks. And if you just look at yeah, oh okay. Well, so, so if you just look at what um, oh, what maker ahead. has no, already done going. in the past, and we find that they use the exact same options that central banks are also using. So they can use uh, open market operations. So they can they can print. Um, they, they, can, they can print maker, for example, and buy back dye from the market to burn it. So that's one thing that they can do. Or they can they can print dye and then they can buy ether to back the dye. So they uh, those would be one way to remove dye from the market and one way to push dye onto the market. So those are those are two options. And I think like I'm not 100% sure, but I believe those are also two things that maker has done in the past when it was under less scrutiny than it is today. And nowadays, I think they, they really don't want to be labeled a bank. So I, I guess they stay away from that for now. <clears throat> but the other is a very underrated option. So what Maker does is it uh, it allows more types of collateral um, and it, it changes uh, basically the, the worthiness of this collateral as well. So it can say how how much money can be borrowed against this form of collateral based on its implied volatility usually. And that, that is one option that that is super key to the central banking system or to the banking system that we have today, but that most people never talk about is the collateral policy of central banks. So the central banks also control the amount of credit in the economy very strongly by um, allowing and disallowing different forms um, of collateral that banks can accept to give credit. So, so Hasu, what's interesting to me about so, so that article in particular is you talked about this convergence between, you know, stablecoin and DeFi and central banking, right? You said within the next five years, we'll yeah. see a major central bank hire a stablecoin designer and a stablecoin system hire a famous central bank economist, right? So there's this convergence. And it does feel to me, like even given what you said, there's sort of a, a fork in the road for Maker. It can either go in the direction of mm -hmm. removing some subjectivity, right? And going in the direction of something that's more algorithmic in terms of uh, stabilizing price. But there's some trade-offs there. Maybe uh, usability is a trade-off because you have to get into you know negative negative uh, interest rates for for the money, and people aren't used to that. They might not like that. There's a usability trade-off, and then on the other the other fork and like side of the fork is they could become a bit more central bank like, and start. And the inevitable conclusion of that is you know play that mm -hmm. out, and you're doing open market operations like the Fed basically. So I mean, do you see it as a fork in the road for these DeFi protocols? They either become like a bit more protocol-like through their governance process, uh, or they become a bit more like a like a traditional. I'm not sure if I'd see it as a fork in the road. I, it's, so the one reason why makers I think is super attractive to central bankers and to uh, economists is is the reason that it crypto is such an amazing microcosm for monetary experiments and just monetary policy options. So if you're, if you work at a central bank today, 
and like you have learned um you have you have learned all these different ways that you can potentially uh manipulate uh basically monetary policy to get one outcome or the other in terms of achieving achieving your mandate then these are all conjecture really like we we, we don't have a ton of um ways to test these but I, like if 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 I was working there, then it would be super fascinating to me to go into a space where I can actually implement and test these things uh, in a free market environment where people like willingly adopt a coin, and then you have competition of the best ways to manage that currency. Um, I I just think that that's probably the most one of the most fun things <laughs> that you can do. Um, but at the same time, um, central bankers are very aware of the kind of negative influence, you could say, um, that a lack of political independence from governments creates. So there is a branch in um, monetary economics um, that is called algorithmic central banking. So that, that is not something that crypto invented. Um, because, I mean, central bankers would also like to make less, like some of these rules, or they, they would like to invent rules, um, sort of like automatic trigger. So when, um, when that happens uh, to certain key parameters in the economy, then we do this policy. And then when the policy has such an effect, it stops, so on. So these are just algorithms. And the problem, the problem for some central banks is that they can't credibly commit to these algorithms because they always, they, their hands are sort of tied to um, the political, they are tied uh, and depend on the political moods of you know, whoever's in charge in the country. And, and also, you know, the, what the actual people think about their policy. So it, I see crypto as like a really interesting way to um, experiment with commitment devices. So a commitment device is just you you commit to a uh, something that allows you to commit to a certain algorithm or certain policy and then stick with it. And then you can credibly say, I can't change this. My hands are tied. So a smart contract without an admin key would be one way to do this. That's why I don't necessarily see it as a fork in the road, but I see it as more of a convergence. So the two, the two will become one. Where I think crypto will attract a lot of central bankers um, because of the experiments that can be run here, and just because of how well their knowledge applies. But then, what crypto does for central banking is like popularizing um, commitment devices and removing the ability for uh, governments and the tyranny of the masses to to influence uh, central bank policy. Hazo, getting your perspective on Bankless has been super valuable. And before we let you go, we need to talk about, of course, EIP-1559. Um, and if I could challenge you in, in, a, in, a, in a way, can I get you to in a concise way, in the most concise way as possible, wrap up and summarize the significance and impact of EIP-1559 upon the Ethereum nation. 
Like what, if you had to boil it down in its most simplistic form, how does it materially impact the Ethereum nation? Well, it's very hard to be concise about this because of how central this kind of, this changes to Ethereum. It touches on so many different things and that's just, that's just the nature of uh, how central the block size, uh, the block space, sorry, market is for any blockchain. Um, EIP one five five nine is is just a small uh, handful of of lines of code, um, but its its implications would be pretty big. So for me personally, I mean everyone sees a different thing in it, but I, I see four um, I see four um, benefits uh, of the proposal. So the first is it um, it implements or it creates a better UX for users when interacting with the block space market. So the way that it works right now is everyone um, submits a transaction together with a bid for inclusion, and that bid is the transaction fee. But the problem is you don't know uh, you don't know how much is actually needed to get into a block. So because miners just include everyone's transactions, um, basically uh, they they just perpetually fill blocks uh, with transactions and then hash them to. Uh, to search for the golden dons, but um, you don't know how much others are going to bid. So you always, like if you want to get in urgently, you're probably going to bid more than the people already bid and then others see that and bid even higher. And it's just like these these, these kind of um, models are called first price auctions and they are um, they are quite inefficient in terms of translating like the actual the, the actual preference of users to get into a block um into pay uh and paying like a reasonable amount of money and the way that erp 1559 changes this is it implements a a fixed price sale so a fixed price sale is when you go to amazon and you see an item uh and, and that has a certain price and you can just decide to buy it or not and that's what one five five nine would do also. So you could, you would just decide on the spot if, like, a transaction would have a certain price, and you can just um, decide on the spot if you want to get in or not. And um, the way that it, uh, the way that it does this is by uh, implementing a a new f type of fee. So instead of one fee, there would be two types of fees, and the first is called base fee. Uh, and the second is called the tip. The base fee is set by the protocol uh, and is burned. So it does not go to miners. And the second is the tip. The tip goes to miners. Um, and uh, in the next step, we have two. Um, we don't have the single rigid block size cap anymore, but we actually have two uh, block size caps. So we have, the, we have the target block size, which is 10 million gas. And then we have... Uh, the new maximum block size, which is twice that amount, so it's it's twenty million gas. And blocks are no long blocks no longer um, have to be ten million. They can also exceed the, um, the 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 previous maximum, so they can be higher than ten million for a period of time. So they can be, if if miners want, they can mine up to twenty million um, uh, gas worth of blocks. Blocks, blocks worth of gas, <laughs> sorry. Um, uh, but it's only possible for uh, 
a short period of time. Because if you look back to what we talked about with Maker and how you govern uh, stability or how, how you can basically price target a money uh, and how this is very similar to derivatives exchanges and the way that they get price stability of a perpetual swap against a, a spot, the spot price of an asset, they do this with these kind of continuous funding payments. And EIP-1559 is actually not that different from that because uh, you also have a target. So you have a block size, an average block size that you want to target, which is 10 million gas. And then uh, you have this you have this payment for transactors, which is the base fee, which the protocol can control. And um, the higher, like the larger the blocks are, the higher the base fee goes. And, and that eventually creates uh, a downward pressure on the size of the blocks. So if you mine one block, then that's, that's, that's let's say 20 million gas, then the base fee would increase. If you mine another, it would increase further and so on. So it always increase relative to what it was before. Um, and, and, and so the base fee would just continue to go up. And um, then eventually when there are no more transactors that are willing to pay the price, then uh, maybe we can mine smaller blocks again. And when you mine blocks below 10 million gas, that's when the block size, uh, not the block size, that's when the base fee starts to go down, starts to normalize. And the fact that we always target 10 million gas, but there's 20 million of capacity, that is what ensures the, the fixed price sale because there is always extra capacity available. It's just that it is the, the base fee that governs um, how frequently uh, is the, the, how frequently the excess capacity is used, if that makes sense. So um, because there's always extra capacity, you can always be sure that you get in at the fixed price if you want to. I mean, Hasu, that that's like a very thorough explanation of EIP 1559. And I, I, I don't know that I've, I've heard such a thorough explanation, right? So... Um, it's clear that you have dug deeply into it. One of the implications, I think, in in your article, at least one of my takeaways, was mm-hmm. um, the burning of the uh, p- part of Ether in these transactions actually makes the Ethereum to monetary policy of minimum necessary issuance more palatable, uh, more viable. Uh, you know that that was a huge takeaway for me. I, I guess now that you dove into this uh, so deeply. What's your takeaway on the implications for investors? Like, are, did, did it make you more or less bullish on ETH, the asset? Oh, I mean, I see 1559 as super positive for Ethereum. Like if uh, I am super in favor of it being implemented after I reviewed it. So um, I think it's very hard to disentangle the how, how well the the different benefits. We only touched on one of them, right? So we touched on a better UX for transactors, but there's also, we briefly touched on the other one. So um, we now target an average block size rather than a fixed block size. And that allows more flexibility in the block size, um, but without creating an additional burden for uh, people who want to validate, which is very important. Um, But then there's also the benefit of better security and uh, preventing economic abstraction. And it's it's very hard to say how much each of those will 
uh, impact the, the price of Ether or just the market sentiment. Just looking at, <laughs> I guess, looking at, at, at um, how the Ethereum community talks about the proposal. So very few people talk about the fixed price sale, which is probably my favorite part. Um, and very, like a lot of people talk about the security, well, not even about the security aspect. I guess there's also this, so for, what for me is like, it's a, it's a security benefit. Uh, most people just see as, okay, um, the monetary policy of ETA is going to improve. Um, because you now have this, because the base fee is burned, um, and it's the base fee is 99% or something of all the fees that are uh, going to be paid. Um, because the base fees burn, that's created deflationary pressure on the Ether coin supply. And that's, I guess that, that is the, the main benefit that, um, that I read when I read about, uh, like other articles on ERP 1559. But I think that it's really the synthesis of, of all these benefits that, that is very, very beneficial. It was awesome to get you to take a look at EIP-1559. Thank you for doing it. Thank you for all of your work in the space, Hasu. You've written a fantastic body of knowledge. Um, I think both David and I consider you one of the, the free thinkers that kind of bridges multiple communities and honestly talks common sense <laughs> and rationality uh, to each of them and is not afraid to push back on the, the religious conjecture. Um, you know, another piece I'll just mention was a piece you wrote, we'll include it in the show notes, about um, your future projections of, of Bitcoin's uh, security. That was, uh, mm -hmm. I think you wrote with that with James Pet Presswich, and uh, that was another, you know, instrumental article for me in understanding Bitcoin into the future and transaction security when, once issuance uh, runs out. So we'll, guys, we will include many of Hasu's articles in the show notes so you have access to that at the ready. Hasu, I've got to ask you one last question mm -hmm. uh, before we go. So you have chosen an anonymous, uh, pseudonymous identity online, and it is this uh, Morty with an eye patch from Rick and Morty. So I have assumed all of this time that you are a Rick and Morty fan. Are you indeed, sir, a Rick and Morty fan? And why'd you pick the Morty with the eye patch? I guess he's my he's my favorite character from the show. My I mean my favorite episode is the Rick Lantis mix up, which is I think it's season three. Uh, it's uh, the agreed. That was a great one. And the, that was a great the one. And just the way that it uh, it has these different layers and different storylines that all pay off in the end in a really nice way um yeah that's i think that's one of the best episodes in tv period right and of course it prominently features even morty you've got me hungry for some rick and morty um i, I think i might <laughs> do some binge tonight i actually have to get caught up on season four i've got like two more episodes left um and uh yeah it's a great show it does it feels like it does keep getting better but i'm waiting for their like it's it's always you know sci-fi something right when are they going to do the sci-fi crypto have they touched on anything with respect to like money in some of these sci-fi civilizations i don't think i've seen that yet I, they did once they, they had one episode where um the empire invaded earth and i i'm not sure what what happened exactly but Someone, I think Rick hacked into their computer. And, yeah, made every one of their 
Rick, Rick made the the money of the system worth one of something to worth zero of something, and then everyone everyone started blowing blowing like shooting themselves. <laughs> Rick was the Fed. Yeah, that was definitely the exact ad um, fiat money. I, at least I read it that way. Yeah, I recall that now. Now that you guys are mentioning it, I I worry that they'll do an episode on like crypto, and you know, yeah. Rick will find some way to like beat the Bitcoin blockchain and destroy immutability. <laughs> you know, it will send the wrong message. <laughs> but on the one hand, I on the one hand, it's always nice when shows include references to Bitcoin. Yeah, they never really. But get at it right. the same time. Yeah, it's never really satisfying no. when it actually happens. Not yet. It always makes the show, like if you liked the show previously, it just makes it look better. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Hasu, this has been fantastic. Um, we, we appreciate you being here. Thanks, thanks for everything you do. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. All right, guys, this has been Hasu. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, some action items. I think, guys, the real big action item is to check out some of Hasu's body of work. We will include some of our favorite articles in the action items. So that's number one. Uh, number two is go check out the episode that we did on um, Ether Scarcity that talks about 1559, why we're also bullish on uh, this change in Ether's monetary policy. And that's really what it is. We'll include that as the second action item. And uh, third, David, I haven't checked in the last week or two. How are we doing on the five-star reviews, sir? Hey, we're, we're, we're doing pretty good, but we still want to do better. We I think we have 60 or so five-star reviews. So if you guys could push that up into the 70s and 80s, we are still not showing up when you type in crypto or Bitcoin or Ethereum into the iTunes podcast search. Uh, and so those five-star reviews are how we get there. So Thank you for those that have given us those five-star reviews. And if you are yet to do so, please do that. It really, really helps us reach more ears, reach a, a bigger bankless audience. Cool. And last announcement is actually, David, you and I uh, started a video uh, podcast. Well, a, a video cast that we're publishing on YouTube. We're also publishing on this stream as well. Can you can you tell folks about that? Yeah, we are doing the State of the Nation every Tuesday. So you guys can actually look at the charts, look at the data, look at the tweets that we are talking about. So if you guys are into video content, if you guys are on YouTube, you can find the State of the Nation on the Bankless YouTube and then it will also be released as a podcast version uh, on the stream as well, because why not? But really, the substance is the video that is on YouTube. All right, guys, that's it from us. Risk and disclaimers. Crypto is risky, folks. DeFi is risky. We talked about EIP-1559. That could cause some risk, too. You could lose what you put in. This is crypto. We are headed west, though. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but we are glad you are with us on the bankless journey. Thanks a lot.